Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program offering Graphical Literature 209, or Literature 209, which is Graphical Literature and Society and History as a publicly available podcast. I am your ever-suffering Professor Hamby here with my seasonally suffering T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. As folks know from our state of the podcast, we have some new equipment. We've been trying out different configurations, and I think this is our second or third time recording this episode. Second? Second. We are now trying a central mic, because even with two mics and me alternating editing muting, it was a mess. And hold on one second. Ah! That's right, I had to sneeze. And we have a box of tissues right here between us. Because we both have sucky sinuses. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, we have a new podcast website launching. Uh, Miskatonic University has made a subdomain available for us, and my TAs have worked up a nice-looking website. Thank you, graphics major TAs. Um, I don't know the difference between a PNG and a TIF myself. But the site looks nice. It is at comicscourse.miskatonicuniversity.net. The rest of the site apparently is down because they're still recovering from the ransomware attack. And uh, apparently an unplanned beetle infestation of some kind. Not again! Somehow, apparently, a rare breed of Iranian dust beetles have made their way into our server room. God damn it, Jerry, not again. Again, I know. Jerry was told. So... That it will be live when this is live. I'm also on a whole bunch of new social medias, like Tumblr and stuff like that. You will find the links on my link tree. Details will be in the show notes and the outro. And I'm still on Twitter, at least until the dumpster fire burns through the bottom of the dumpster and spreads all over the street. Oh, we're so close to that point. It feels like... Right. By the time some people listen to this, Twitter may be gone. I don't know. Maybe they'll sort the mess out. I don't know. I hope. I hope. So, today, we are going to talk about a few things related to the graphics literature publishing industry, and then we are going to jump into Season of Miss, the next Sandman chapter by Neil Gaiman. Now, you've been looking forward to continuing Sandman, right, Ro? I have. And you enjoyed the Sandman TV series. Are you hyped to hear that they're going to have another season? Yes, I'm very young. So, in the graphics publishing industry, graphic literature publishing industry, the big story these days seems to be that scrolling comics are now going to print. Mm. So, Webtoon, which I think everybody of your generation is aware of. Yeah. And... Of the generations older than you, apparently nobody is aware of. <laughs> I mean, is that fair? Millennials know. Millennials know. Some millennials Younger know. ones. The younger okay. millennials. Know. Well, Webtoon is really been the Western face of the English translated long web scrolling format, which is very much of Korean manhwa origins. Although I think the Japanese and some other Asian cultures jumped on it pretty early too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Chinese have. And for those listening to this who don't know what I mean by scrolling webtoons, they ha tend to have like about one panel per screen 
and you have to scroll and scroll and scroll for a very long time, and the end of a scroll is a chapter. And I've even seen people attempt to download them and save the graphics in a format for, say, a CBR file for reading like a traditional comic on a tablet. And it doesn't work very well. And that would be weird. That's not how the artist intended for you to read it, so panels will be weird. Yes, it's very awkward. And But I have to admit, I don't like all the scrolling. Oh, you don't? I don't, and not because I have a problem with the scrolling itself. I'm fine with that, and I'm fine with non-traditional storytelling formats. My problem is the scrolling on a website, because inevitably, somewhere in the course of reading, something happens with these buggy-ass websites, and I have to reload, and then I have to find where I am and 300 panels of scrolling. That's why you download the app. Okay, I've been doing it on the web, so the solution is to use the app? Yeah, and then get kicked out of your account five billion times. Not that I've experienced this. Yeah, and this comes from somebody who told me that they don't use Webtoons anymore after the site changes. Yeah. So they're taking two... True Beauty and Tower of God, and launching Webtoon Unscrolled. Mm. Now, I guess they're going to reformat them into maybe not a traditional comics format, but something that works better for a printed page. Because they're not going to put one panel per page. I, I hope not. That would uh, uh, be a very, very long book and expensive to print. Mm-hmm. And True Beauty, I'm not familiar with. Tower of God, I've seen the anime of. Mm -hmm. True Beauty has been around, I think, like since the start of Webtoon. I know it's one of their biggest works. I read one or two chapters and got mm -hmm. bored and bailed. Yeah. The general format of Webtoons, so that people know, is that they let you read a certain number of chapters for free and then you have to pay per uh, chapter after that. And generally, the more popular a title is, ironically, the more chapters they give you for free. Mm -hmm. Because if it's a niche genre or something, they know people will care, and if it's a popular one, they want to really get people hooked. Mm -hmm. And it's sad they did it because they didn't used to do it. That's, one that, that's yeah. the reason I dropped it. And there are, unfortunately, a lot of pirate sites out there. In mm -hmm. fact, it can be hard to find the actual legitimate site and a lot of the pirate sites look like the legitimate sites. Mm -hmm. It's not like other kinds of book pirating where you can go, this is obviously shady. But in this market, the the shady ones look as legit as the <laughs> legit ones. <laughs> it's because they're all using the same resources to make their site. <laughs> they probably are. And Webtoon Unscrolled is not alone. Yen Press, which is a well-known publisher of English translated uh, manga and I believe light novels yeah. along with things like J Novel Club. But anyway, Yen Press specifically uh, at SakuraCon this year announced Ize Press, an imprint dedicated to Korean content. And we'll be working with Reverse and Red Dice Studios. Ooh. So again, more efforts to bring manhwa content into the English mainstream. Makes sense. It's been as popular as manga in recent years. Yeah, and it is manga, essentially. I mean, in fact, I'm pretty sure manhwa and manga come from some root Chinese term. Yeah. That often seems to be the case when a word is almost identical in Korean and Japanese is that there's a Chinese root. You can find the link in China. 
kind of like how, you know, if you have a almost identical word in, say, French or Spanish, it probably comes from the same Latin root word. Mm -hmm. Not that Korean and Chinese, uh, Korean and Japanese are derivatives of Chinese, they're not, but Chinese had a large cultural impact over the entire Pacific Rim region of the world. Mm -hmm. So their first ones they're launching with are The World After the Fall and Villains Are Destined to Die. I'm not familiar with either of those. I think I've heard of Villains Are Destined to Die. It does sound a little bit familiar. But following that are some called The Remarried Empress, which I have Uh, heard of. Yeah, that's everywhere. Tomb Raider King, which I've definitely heard of. And The Boxer and My Gently Raised Beast. Oh, I've heard of that last one as well. So I'm looking forward to these. I'm curious about them. So now let's get into Neil Gaiman's Season of Mists. This is the next story arc of Sandman. By this time, Sandman had proved itself very popular, and there was no doubt that he was going to be able to do a long, fully developed story arc. So we're not looking at the short-term writing that we did up through, say, Dream Country. We're now looking at the long game. We're in the long haul. We're in the long haul. And Season of Mists is from a Keats poem called To Autumn. Should, should I read the actual poem? Yeah, go for it. All right. This is a lit class. We should probably acknowledge some literature written before the Industrial Age. Some. And the title, Season of Mists, comes out in the very first line of the poem. And as we read through the poem, I want you to think about some of these themes. The themes of To Autumn are about death. They're about the end of things and about enjoying the beauty of the world while it's vibrant and alive. So you will hear lines about things like the gnats dying because they live for such a brief period. Mm-hmm. And autumn, of course, represents this sort of end of things. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, Conspiring with him how to load and bless With fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run To bend with apples the mossed cottage trees And fill all fruit with ripeness to the core To swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells With a sweet kernel to set budding more And still more later flowers for the bees Until they think warm days will never cease For summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells Who hath not seen oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft-lipped, sorry, soft-lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with a patient look, thou watchest the last oozings hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies. And full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly bourne, hedge crickets sing, 
and now with treble soft the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. That is To Autumn by Keats. And it is about beauty and embracing the present, themes that will become very important as we look at Season of Myths, which will touch on those themes very strongly, along with themes of free will and responsibility. And we will compare and contrast how the different characters respond to these themes, or represent them, I should say, through their actions. So let us begin. Uh We begin with quotes that Gaiman selected for the start of the collection, the collected storyline. The first is from Isaac Watts, his, his Divine and Moral Songs for Children, published in 1720. There is a dreadful hell and everlasting pains. Their sinners must with devils dwell in darkness, fire, and chains. Now this represents the very traditional view of hell, of course. And Season of Mist picks up where we left off as Morpheus has left hell with his helm, his raiment, after defeating the Duke of Hell, Corazon, and humiliating Lucifer in front of the Hordes of Hell. Mm -hmm. And Lucifer vows revenge. Mm -hmm. Which they represented pretty well in the TV show, I think. Yeah. You don't have to stay anywhere forever, said by Edward Payne. The meaning of this is going to become pretty clear. You don't have to stay anywhere forever without giving too much away as we walk through the broad plot. It is going to relate very strongly to Lucifer's actions. And going to be mirrored a bit by the dead boys, too. The dead schoolboys, when we get to them. I just want to point out these gorgeous covers. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yeah, the covers of Sandman have received their due recognition sometime, uh, uh, even, even, even being collected in their own volumes of just the covers. So let's jump into the story. And we will walk along with the plot a little bit and talk about the themes as we go. But we're not going to go in super close detail. We open on a pair of bare feet. And this huge elaborate garden with Grecian elements, with an area that appears to be desert, with hedgerows, with everything. And it turns out to be the Garden of Destiny, who's represented as a man in a deep-shadowed cowl with bare feet, with a large book chained to his wrist. Mm. Destiny is the eldest of the endless. Mm. Once something exists within the universe for time to pass, then destiny came into existence. That makes sense. Once life came into existence, so did death, because they would have to die eventually. And then once sentience came into existence so things could dream, then... Dream. Dream. And then those such as despair and the others came later after it. Although there is an implication in a later story that the prodigal brother might be older than dream. Oh. Right. Interesting. But delirium, despair, and uh, desire are all younger than dream. Mm. So destiny knows 
all the future as he reads through his book. But he only knows what's immediately coming. He doesn't know the far future. And they've never indicated that he can skip forward. Mm. Now, of all the Endless, he is also the only one not created by Neil Gaiman. Mm. He comes from that era of 70s DC horror anthology comics that also spawned Cain, Abel, the House of Mysteries, and the House of Secrets, which we have already seen in Sandman, which Neil Gaiman has drawn strongly from. And as Destiny is walking around, he runs into the Grey Ladies, another aspect of the three who are one, the Fates, who we've already met several times in the series, mm-hmm. including in a storage closet once. Yeah. Yeah. That was a thing that happened. So they give him a prophecy and tell him it will start in the garden. And Destiny says, nothing starts in my garden. And they say, well, it's as good a place as any. (laughs) So he reads the book and finds that he's in the book for a change. And it says that he will call his siblings for a dinner. And so he does. And he summons each of them, dream, death, despair, desire, and from a portrait of a little girl who looks like a sort of 19th century ideal of a happy little girl, he summons Delirium, who was delight when this portrait was made. Mm. And of course, when she comes through, she is in ripped fishnets and a leather bodysuit with close-cropped orange hair. And she's obviously very anxious and disturbed. It has never been explained in the story exactly what happened to Delight that turned her to delirium. But given her general post-traumatic behavior and some vague comments about a relationship and an entity, it is, and Neil Gaiman's own concerns about these topics, it is pretty widely believed that some equivalent of sexual assault happened to her. Mm. Now, she is a kind of immortal anthropomorphic entity, so it wouldn't be quite what we understand as sexual assault, Mm -hmm. but something of equivalent traumatic experience to her. Yeah. So dinner begins... Proceeds kind of how you'd expect. Destiny says, hey, the gray ladies came to visit and they said I should call you all to dinner. And, you know, the conversation is the sort of family conversation you expect. Hey, where's the prodigal? I don't know. It's your fault he's not here. Yeah, you're an asshole. You're an asshole, bitch, fucker. I'm summarizing. So, you know, it starts off pleasant and then by the end of it, the drunk uncle is, has pissed everyone off. Yeah, sounds about right. Except in this case, the drunk uncle is taken by Desire. Who in that case isn't the drunk uncle, but kind of more the bitchy Aunt Karen. Mm. Which, I mean, that happens too, right? Yeah, it's one of the two. Right. So he says, what was the occasion that prompted you to call us? And Destiny says, just this. I was supposed to summon you all to dinner and the rest is up to you. So he says, drink the wines, eat of the fruit of my garden, and talk. It has been centuries since we have all together. We must have much to discuss. They all just kind of look at each other like, not really. 
<laughs> we don't talk for a reason. So Delirium starts babbling. Dream says he wants to leave. He has stuff to do. Then Destiny just says, that will not happen yet. And nobody apparently wants to mess with Destiny. Fair. So before long, they're screaming, there's yelling. Delirium makes some interesting cryptic comments. Says, don't laugh at me, Desire. Don't make fun of me. I know what you think of me. I know things that none of you know. I know lots of things about us. Things not even he knows. Do you? And she points at Destiny. Ooh. So we also get an implication that maybe some sort of knowledge broke Delight and turned her into delirium. Some truth that even the endless can't handle. Mm. I've always kind of preferred that interpretation, the wide interpretation of the sexual assault. I, I understand that Neil Gaiman is very concerned about this as an issue with women, and he certainly has written about it in other cases, for example, in the story Calliope. Yeah, that's the main point of it. Right. But there's a big jump between a divine but very closely tied to humanity creature like a nymph or muse, and then a creature like Delirium, which is an anthropomorphic personification of something that represents everything capable of feeling joy or emotion in the universe. Yeah. And I think the idea that some sort of fundamental knowledge broker is still both very in the realm of Neil Gaiman, who often plays with these ideas that even the great mystic movers miss things. Uh, he ha- did it very comically in Good Omens with uh, Terry Pratchett. And the whole joke about the ineffable plan and how the angels and demons don't even know what the ineffable plan is. They just assume it's the same thing as the great plan. And Good Omens was so good. Yes. And I'm looking forward to season two of it as well. I am too. David Tennant and... Well, not just David Tennant. All, all the actors in it were just super. Yeah. So I, I think that works and is more likely the case. That yeah. some knowledge broke her. And it does place this interesting idea that the Endless don't know everything. There is something big and above the Endless. Mm -hmm. And we see at least part of that when we get to Sandman Overture. So, the conversation goes on. Desire starts ribbing Dream about Nada. Mm -hmm. And he gets angry and basically threatens Desire. But Destiny shuts him down and is like, this is my house. You're not going to get violent here. Mm-hmm. So he's basically been told by Destiny that he can't leave and he's not going to be allowed to put Desire in his place. So he walks out to the balcony. Desire's bitchy as he leaves and Death turns to her and says, Shut up, Desire. If you ever want to speak again, shut up. Mm. And then Desire looks down and starts studying her feet because... She can't pick a fight with death. Yeah. So Dream walks out mm-hmm. to the balcony. Death follows him out. You know, she asks, hey, bro, how you doing? Him. Things suck. <laughs> that sounds like a typical conversation for them. Right, it really does. Just like how you always have the drunk uncle and the bitchy aunt, you also always have the emo cousin. Right, exactly. 
So they begin discussing things, and he's complaining about Desire being a bitch. And Death says, well, she was a bitch about it, but she's right. Dream blows up and accuses her of also sort of teaming up against him. And Death says, well, Nada loved you and you sent her to hell just because she wouldn't do everything your way. Mm -hmm. And she's been there for 10,000 years. That was a major asshole move. And he is forced to confront it. And this is where we get our first real in-depth view of the theme of responsibility. The... Reaction of Morpheus to being told that he's done the wrong thing is to immediately say, I must correct it. If I have wronged her and I have been in the wrong, I must acknowledge that and go fix it and free her now. To which Death is kind of like, whoa, uh, don't do anything stupid. And he oh, says... Stupid's his middle name. He says, I am afraid it is too late for that admonition, but I will do my best. Either I shall bring Nada out of hell, or I shall see you again soon, my sister. Meaning, he may die. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, they've not really discussed this here, but they've. But when one of the Endless dies, basically their personality, their aspect dies, and then they're replaced by something else. <laughs> and that's explained for the first time when talking to Lucian, and Morpheus says... Essentially, look, if I die, please make things as streamlined as possible for the new aspect that replaces me. However, if I'm imprisoned and no aspect is able to replace me, I don't want the chaos that happened when Burgess imprisoned me to take place again. So, Lucian, you're in charge. Because, of course, when the chips are down, you have to turn to the librarian. As always. Librarians are the only ones that know how to organize shit around here. Well, she, well, he basically did that without him the first time. It didn't go great, but yeah. So now we go to see hell with all of the grotesque, beautiful art. Mm -hmm. It is really just amazing. I do recommend the art for anybody uh, who has watched the TV show and enjoyed it. If you get an opportunity to see the books, just spend some time working through the art. The contrast of dark to light is just phenomenal here. So Morpheus prepares to leave. He gathers everybody together. He imparts a bunch of info. And again, Matthew the Raven, uh, voiced by Patton Oswalt in the TV show, uh, to, to wonderful effect, I thought. Yeah. He again gets to be our viewpoint. All the supernatural dreams of dreamland wouldn't think to ask what Matthew, who's now technically a dream, but was a human being, would ask. Because he just doesn't know these things. And so, with that excuse in hand, we get a little bit of an info dump from Morpheus about how Lucifer... Matches kind of the John Milton Paradise Lost Lucifer. They were the Morning Star. They were the second most powerful entity in creation. Only after the Creator, they rebelled and were sent down to hell with the other angels that sided with him. And while he may not be more powerful than Dream in relation to matters of Dream, he is far more powerful in general 
and could easily destroy Dream. So that is a concern. Now, Dream is doing everything by the book because if there's one thing Dream is, that he is prideful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's less spiteful these days than he used to be. I say less, not entirely. Yeah, he's chilled out a little bit. Yep. So he needs to send a messenger who won't get immediately ganked while the half-rotted uh, skull demon Mazikin played in the Lucifer TV show by a very attractive woman who I noticed they did not make half-rotting face. <laughs> Wait, Maze was supposed to be a dude? No, that's female. Not super femme, I admit, but female. Oh, oh I couldn't tell. But you see the half-rotting face. Oh. Yeah. So Lucifer sends Cain, because this story is embracing a lot of Judeo-Christian mythology. And Cain, in Judeo-Christian mythology, uh, was the first murderer, Mm -hmm. killed his brother Abel, but then when discovered by the Lord, was also exiled to the land of Nod east of Eden, and was marked so that should anyone touch him, hurt him, and thus potentially kill him and reduce his suffering which the Lord is a vengeful entity and does not want anybody to kill Cain and reduce his suffering, then should they do so, then the harm will be visited upon them sevenfold. Mm -hmm. This is the one power that is greater than Lucifer's, the creator. Mm -hmm. So it's the one entity that Dream can actually safely send. And in their conversation, Lucifer just is amused by all of it. And when he finds out Dream is coming, he says, that's great. But we also find out that Lucifer is still willing to kill Cain. Mm. Lucifer is not cowed, even by the power of the creator. And this gives us some anticipation of what is to come. Mm -hmm. And we find out as the story goes on and things go on, that while Gaiman is embracing this Judeo-Christian mythology related to figures like Cain and Abel and Lucifer, it is not defined by Judeo-Christian mythology. In other words, these entities of, say, Cain and Abel and the first murderer, we as the reader are seeing them because this is the social context we'd expect. If this story were being absorbed by you know, the Plutarchs of Alpha Gamma 7 Quadrant, they might see Cain and Abel as a completely different context as in the context of their mythology of the first murderer. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So this is how we're reading it. Now we go to see a baby. Oh, not again. The baby. Lida Hall's baby, whose baby daddy was a ghost inside a dream. Nothing good can come. Of a young boy. Nothing good comes with shit like this. So technically they were having sex in the head of a young boy. Ew. I know. Having sex in a young boy. That's just wrong. It's just wrong. That's every kind of wrong. Yeah. Let's just pretend I didn't say that. Yeah. Let's do that. So Lida, Hippolyta, Hall has not yet named the baby, but obviously her number one enemy in the universe is Morpheus. So he pops by. She flips out immediately. You killed his father! You can't touch him! So he can 
starts to touch him. On the forehead. Not creepy-like. Mm-hmm. Morpheus is many things, but a pedophile is not one of them. Right, exactly. She snatches the baby away. What, bitch, what do you think you're going to do? He's a literal god. He's well, it's more powerful than a god. Yeah. So, as he leaves, he says, by the way, his name is Daniel. And Hippolyta, who hates Dream more than anything else in the universe, proceeds to, in fact, name the kid Daniel. Girl didn't want to go through baby websites to figure out what name she wanted. Clearly not. She wanted the answer key given. And, of course, Daniel is a biblical name. Which I didn't know. Until we talked about it the other Mm -hmm. day. And for those who don't know, Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament who told a king the king's dreams that the king had not told anybody else. It was the king's way of saucing out the fakes. In other words, all these people would come to him and be like, oh, I'm a prophet, I can tell you all these things. Okay, tell me about my dreams and what they mean. Uh, Well, tell me your dreams. Nah, if you have all these mystic powers, you should know my dreams without me telling them to you, right? If you can speak for God, you know, my dreams aren't secret from him. Um, uh, you dreamed of dude chicks? Uh, no. I'm not a 13-year-old boy. Somebody cut off his head. And this is kind of how it went. You know, like, uh, you dreamed of warfare. Stream of wars, right? Uh, no. Cut off his head. Until Daniel gets there and then lays out the dreams and then what their meanings are for him. I don't know if he actually cut off the heads of the other guys, but, I mean... That sounds like something a king would do. Especially in the Old Testament. They seemed very eager to chop off heads. Oh, the murder porn in the Old Testament was hardcore. I think that was the old... A medieval way of showing how big your dick was? Not medieval. This is, I mean, the Old Testament's pre-medieval. It's pre-Roman. But still. Yeah. We have big cars now. They had head chopping. That's fair. So next he goes to visit Hob Gandling, leaves him a bottle of wine, and we see again this idea of friendship. Mm-hmm. That Morpheus now has a friend that he not only acknowledges reluctantly as a friend, but goes out of his way to say bye to in case he doesn't come back. And we know that now Lucifer is prepared. Lucifer is looking forward to his revenge. And Morpheus is entering hell. So what do you think will happen next? I I know a lot of people are looking forward to this storyline on the TV show. As you said, you were looking forward to see what would happen next. And now you have a little bit of an idea. But before we had talked about it in preparation for the episode... What did you think would happen when Morpheus entered hell? Honestly, I thought he was about to get his ass whooped. Did you think it was going to be like one of those storylines of I'm up against a much more powerful foe, but I have to find a creative way to defeat them? Yeah. That that would be the very sort of traditional comic booky approach, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the things that Neil Gaiman does is try to avoid those tropes. Yeah. So as Morpheus lands in hell, and remember last time when Sam Keith was still drawing it, we saw the wailing wood of the suicides, and we saw all these copious visions. 
and gates guarded by squatter bloat. Mm-hmm. Squatter bloat. And now instead we get this huge bleak vision that's empty. There's nobody at the gates. There's no movement. There's no sense of animation. And yet, he doesn't seem to notice that, him being Morpheus. Morpheus is so focused on his target that he just notices there's nobody to stop him. So he immediately goes to where Nada should be to find her gone, and then realize all of hell appears to be empty. So he screams out to get his attention. Lucifer! Lucifer! And Lucifer appears. They have a dialogue. And Lucifer says, take off that silly helmet and we'll talk. I will not be tricked by you, Lucifer Morningstar. Hi, sweet Morpheus. Are you scared of me? Yes. Very well. Then I give you my word that while we are within the bounds of hell, I will do nothing to harm you. Satisfied with that oath, Morpheus takes off his helmet And Lucifer informs him that he's quit. Which leads to these three brilliant panels Uh as Morpheus processes this information in disbelief. Now, here is the first major contrast of the theme of responsibility. We have these two immortal entities. Two entities that have both existed essentially since the beginning of creation. Or at least pretty darn close Mm -hmm. to it. Dream is so motivated by his duty and obligation that he has returned to what he thought was likely death, and if not that, perhaps eternal imprisonment, in order to fulfill his obligation to a woman he wronged. Mm -hmm. And here we have Lucifer, who has apparently been doing this job of looking after hell for four and a half billion years. With no vacations, mind you. No vacations. And has just decided to abdicate his responsibilities and just close everything down. And we find out a little bit more about the nature of hell and nature of Lucifer. Lucifer never uses the term God. He says the creator. He doesn't talk about there being a heaven, but he talks about the silver city where the presence and those created by the presence, what we would call angels, exist. And when he fell, after challenging the creator, he fell into this realm of hell, which is this large metaphysical landscape, which at one point is described as prime metaphysical real estate. The idea of, like, lands and stuff and universes being real estate just cracks me up. I know. And and they just kind of sides, you know, uh, use their hand to dismissively try to explain how it works and just say, metaphysically. Of course. You don't understand it. This is our closest analogy. Move on. Don't think about it. Which I actually think is a great approach from a writing standpoint. Mm -hmm. You know. Say that it doesn't translate, say you're giving the best translation you can, and then you just move on from there, right? Mm -hmm. So Lucifer rebelled against the Creator, expressed free will to not fulfill his obligation, something that Morpheus doesn't even consider at this point. 
And we've seen as a little bit of contention with the prodigal because he's still upset at the prodigal, the still unnamed member of the Endless, who abandoned his responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Which Morpheus won't do. And Lucifer's been doing it for four and a half billion years, apparently, which is how long Hell's existed, which is the approximate age of the universe as was understood uh, at the time this was written. So the implication, or, or beginning of Earth anyway. So the implication kind of was that he's he fell shortly after the beginning of time, mm-hmm. or beginning of the universe. And when Hell's Gates opened... It wasn't just the fallen angels that went there, Mm -hmm. but all these other entities, all these other creatures were kind of drawn to this as the natural place for them to exist in the metaphysical universe. Mm -hmm. And these made up the complements of what we call demons. Mm -hmm. We also find out that the souls are only damned by their own will. In other words, even the end of your life, you still have free will. And people end up in hell because they choose to. Many of them out of some form of narcissism. Some belief that they should be punished. And to really stick the point home, uh, Gaiman writes in this one character. Now, Lucifer is at this point running around hell, basically kicking out the few demons that won't leave, the few souls that won't leave, and closing up gates to completely secure it so people can't just come back in after he's gone. Mm -hmm. And they find this guy chained to a giant rock, and Lucifer has said, You, did you not hear my proclamation? You are free. I will not leave. Uh, yeah, you will. You do not understand. I am Brashaw. I am receiving my just punishment for my crimes committed while I was alive, for my crimes were monstrous things. And then he goes on to have this whole monologue about all the horrible things he did. I mean, he raped his mother. He raped his sister. I think he did things with corpses. He ruled a kingdom, all these other things. And Lucifer listens to it and then says, no one cares. Nobody even remembers the country that you did all these horrible things in anymore. Your name isn't even ranked up as a trivia question. Mm-hmm. You are forgotten. The universe does not care about you. You are not that important. And Lucifer sends him away. And we get a speech from Lucifer talking about how he's just tired of it. He, he's... He talks about this triumvirate of demons, you know, where these other two were sharing power with him that was discussed back in the first story arc. And he's like, I let them think that they could pressure me into it. I mean, yeah, I could destroy all of them with a blink. They don't actually understand how much more powerful I am than they are. But it's been four and a half billion years. I was bored. I put up with all their petty intrigues, trying to break the monotony. I put up with all the souls demanding that they be tortured because I guess it's what I was set here to do. And he says, I don't even know if I really rebelled. I'm serving the creator's plan sitting down here 
helping fulfill the demands of the dead, and they're setting the rules, not me. The damned are telling us how to torture them and demanding that they be tortured. And I have to put up with people describing me like some sort of fishmonger trying to steal people's souls. And he says, what use do I have in having somebody's soul? <laughs> and nobody can actually sell their soul, by the way. It's theirs. It has no value because you can't trade it or anything. What would you even trade it for? Well, of course, in the myths, you trade your soul for deals from the devil, for power or riches or something. And he's like, I can't take your soul. You, Nobody can even send you to heaven or hell. You choose to go there mm -hmm. or wherever else or reincarnation. Everybody determines their own path, except for me. I sit down here, possibly fulfilling the creator's will while thinking, only thinking I rebelled. And they finally leave the gates of hell. He gets Lucifer to cut off his wings, which I he guess... He gets Morpheus to cut off Lucifer's wings? Sorry, did I say that in reverse? Yeah. Yes, you're correct. And which I guess cuts off some metaphysical aspect of himself. And then he says, now I promised you while in the bounds of hell, I wouldn't do anything to harm you, right? Well, we're now outside. So, here. And he gives Dream the key to hell. He says, perhaps it will destroy you, and perhaps it won't. But I doubt it will make your life any easier. It's all yours now, Morpheus. You're the sole monarch of a locked and empty hell. And that is Lucifer's revenge. What do you think? I was not expecting that the first time. That really shocked me. I am looking forward to seeing it in the TV show with Agreed. Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer. Mm -hmm. Agreed. They did a great job. They did. So the next episode opens with Odin in his hall, surrounded by his wolves, his ravens. As he gets the news, he goes down to where Loki is being tortured by a serpent dripping venom into his face, collected periodically by his wife, but some of it always slips past. And we see Odin gathering Loki and Thor in order to create a retinue to visit Dream. We get a little bit more time with the Norse gods than the others, but we know that Neil Gaiman has a particular affection for Norse mythology. In fact, he's done whole collections of both comics and prose books retelling Norse mythology in contemporary language. But he's certainly not alone. Uh, at the same time the Norse gods are showing up, so are a Lord of Chaos, a Lord of Order. These are entities from Dr. Fate and other DC mystic comics. We see a representative of the Japanese gods, uh, specifically a storm god. We see Bast from Egyptian mythology, and a retinue from fairy, and presumably a whole bunch of others, and two angels are sent down from the Silver City to observe. But what all these retinues want is they all want the key. They want hell for themselves. Because it is... Prime, prime real, real estate. estate. 
Which, honestly, I was not expecting a comic about real estate. Right. I mean, this is the torture. This is the bad things happening to Morpheus. That everybody wants it, and they're all going to be in contention, and all vying with Morpheus's favor. Which also means dealing with all their backstabbing and secret planning. So Morpheus has to contend with all that. And one of those retinues is a group of demons. Corazon, the one that had Morpheus's raiment, as well as a new demon called the Merkin, whose I will just describe her to you as Azazel does, Azazel does. With me will go the Merkin, she whose womb spawns spiders. She will be invaluable in convincing the Dream Master of the wisdom of our case. Whose womb spawns spiders. That is something from my worst nightmares. Who the fuck wants that? Uh, Apparently other demons. And then Azaziel, the rift in space demon floating with fanged teeth and, uh, and red eyes, is the third demon. And it turns out they have Nada. And they want hell back for themselves and are willing to trade Nada for it. Meanwhile, Morpheus is hiding out in his throne room and Jean's in a t-shirt looking about as emo as a 16-year-old boy in the 1990s listening to Pearl Jam. That sounds about right for Morpheus. Yep. I wouldn't want him any other way. (laughs) Although I'm not sure his music tastes extend to Pearl Jam. That's... You know, it's probably more the Smiths and Morrissey for him. <laughs> probably. Maybe a little bit of Susie and the Banshees for when he's in a sprightly mood. Sprightly. <laughs> is he ever in a sprightly mood? Finally, he gets his act together, though. And is like, all right, invite them all in. Make them at home. I'll do the king thing and entertain them. There's even a magic show where Cain, you know, cuts Abel in half. Except he... Really cuts him in half. Oops. Oops. And then for chapter four of the storyline, we just randomly start visiting two dead boys in a schoolhouse in England. Because why wouldn't we? Gaiman loves his random asides. Now, these characters become the dead boy detectives in later Vertigo stories and get picked back up on. We do see an impact of hell being emptied as some of the dead return to Earth here. It is a v- actually very creepy, successful story. And it does play on the themes again. The responsibilities, how even some of the dead are coming back to fulfill their responsibilities or roles, even if some of them are, frankly, just evil and foul people. And the boys decide to abdicate their responsibilities. They choose not to go to the sunless lands with death. They choose not to stay where they died, and they wander off in the world to make their own fate. Kind of like Lucifer, but, you know, right away instead of after billions of years. Mm-hmm. Ghosts are supposed to haunt where they died? Screw it. I'm heading out. So, free will. Mm-hmm. And this does tie back to that idea of free will on the immortal versus the mortal, and it's an idea that Gaiman seems to completely reject. If you're sentient, you possess free will to Gaiman. Mm. You know, the idea that if you're an immortal, you don't have free will, well, 
Here we have Lucifer, who obviously is perhaps for the first time expressing free will. And obviously the prodigal did. And all of this, in a way, foreshadows what is eventually going to happen to Morpheus. Because mm-hmm. Morpheus has obviously expressed free will in changing his nature. Mm-hmm. So what else is going to change with him? And could that lead to his destruction? Because it's ended with Lucifer saying, fuck this shit, I'm out. Yeah. Now, here is an interesting thematic point that can be argued here. Gaiman has said that as an immortal, changing his nature leads to his destruction, but why doesn't it for Lucifer? Well, I would argue because Lucifer also abandons his immortal nature. Mm-hmm. He, 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 in a sense, kills himself when he cuts off the wings. Mm-hmm. Although I think that may also be a little bit of a lame answer. But there is a bit of a conflict there between the theme and how it's expressed in the two different characters. Uh, another retinue that comes to Dreamland is a retinue from Fairy that wants Morpheus to keep it empty. Because there's an old pact that every so often they have to send some Fae to hell as slaves in payment. Because hell doesn't have enough torturers, I guess. I guess. So, watching over this bizarre group of people eating, you know, Japanese storm gods, Anubis eating hearts, demons flirting with each other, (laughs) and angels floating above watching it all. That sounds all right. One by one, each of these groups tries to chat up Morpheus. Now, Odin has a particularly fun little bit to offer. Now... This was being published in the very early 90s. In the mid-80s, Crisis on Infinite Earths was published, which consolidated the DC multiverse into a single universe for simplified storytelling. And part of this meant that the Justice Society of America was in an uncomfortable place because the focus wasn't to be on the wartime anymore. So they kind of wanted to get rid of them and had largely ignored the Justice Society's existence since the end of Crisis. But somebody had, a few years previously, decided to publish a story called Whatever Happened to the Justice Society of America. And in it, they traveled to Ragnarok. And this was somehow, I forget the details, tied supposedly to the Spear of Destiny carried by Hitler which was the, in DC Comics history, the excuse of why the Justice League didn't stop the Nazis. Sorry, I wasn't ready for Hitler to come into that explanation. Right. Well, there had needed to be an explanation for why didn't the Justice Society, with all their superpowers, fly over and just dismantle the Nazi regime? Mm -hmm. And the answer was that the Spear of Destiny, which was the spear used to pierce the side of Christ on the cross had fallen into the possession of Hitler, who used it as a giant mystic uh, uh, aegis or shield that prevented, literally, the superheroes from even entering the area of European conflict. Mm. So that had been their answer. So tied into all this is now, somehow, I forget the details, 
they ended up at Ragnarok, where they fused with the Norse gods on like this spiritual level. Uh, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, was Thor. Um, Starman was Heimdall. Hawkman was Odin, I think. Don't quote me on that one. And so on and so forth. And they lived through the events of Ragnarok. Alan Scott died to the Midgard Serpent. Uh, and that kind of stuff. And then it rebooted, and it just kept happening over and over. And the implication was that somehow by the Justice Society fighting this fight at Ragnarok, that it would prevent the actual end of the world. And was happening in some pocket dimension. Well, here, again, remember, I've said this before many times about Neil Gaiman, he's a comic book geek. People talk about Neil Gaiman like, oh, he's a true literary man, who lowered himself to write comic books and elevated the form. Neil Gaiman has never seen it that way. He's a comic book geek who likes comic books. Probably didn't like the monthly schedule, which is why he's probably happier doing TV shows and novels and stuff. But he has never looked down on comics and has shown his love for them with his knowledge of the obscura and esoteric. So Odin says, hey, little pocket dimension. Turns out I was responsible for this. I'm the one that set up this fake Ragnarok that's replaying over and over again because I was hoping by watching it play out over and over again that I would find a way to stop the actual one. Uh, it didn't work out, but I was trying. Gotta give me an A for effort. And... So Odin says, I've been doing this, I have my gold star, but it's turned out to not really work out. But there's a guy in here named Wesley Dobbs, the Golden Age Sandman, who has a piece of your essence in him. I'll trade you the little pocket dimension in exchange for hell, because I can create like a new Asgard there and hide us away from Ragnarok. And Morpheus is tempted. The demons approach and offer him both Corazon and Nada, and he's tempted. Bast approaches him and says, I know the secret of where the prodigal is. Give hell to the Egyptian gods, and I will give you this. And he's tempted. The gods of chaos just basically try to threaten him. That's not very chaotic of them. Yeah, it's kind of predictable, isn't it? There's also a really creepy scene in here with the demon mother and Corazon. I'm skipping over <laughs> Yeah, we're not talking about that. We went over it the first time. I, that was uncomfortable. Yeah, seriously. So Morpheus is just not sure what to do. And then, the next morning, as we see one of the altar boys of the Egyptian retinue leaving the bedroom with one of the fey guys. They obviously had a good time last night. And I, and I say fey here, meaning fairy, not... I just realized that could sound wrong. And we see these other figures wandering around, and Thor is drunk and hungover, and everybody's gathering to hear Morpheus's decision, and we find out that there's a deuce ex machina. Because there always is. Except this time, it's not from a machine. It's a deuce ex deuce. The god from the god. <laughs> of course. Do, do you know the origin of the phrase deus ex machina? No. So, 
you're, you're familiar with the phrase itself, though, right? Yeah. So, a deus ex machina, for those listening, comes from Greek plays where everything would be suddenly fixed at the end by a god descending from the heavens, represented from by being lowered from a machine. Literally, deus ex machina, god from machine. Well, in this case, this is the deus ex dux, deus, because it's the god from the god. Literally, the angels show up and say, the creator has a message for you, and channel that message. And what the creator says is, uh, basically, that there must be a hell. And if Lucifer's not going to be the caretaker anymore, I'm going to assign these two angels to be the new caretakers of hell. And I want you to give the key to them so that they can reopen it to serve its purpose. There must be a hell in the clockwork of creation. And the creator, so listen to me. Right. And the angels aren't thrilled about this. But then they kind of come around to, I'm going to make this a glorious hell. It's going to be a place for people to be happy and become better and purified. Because that's what hell is. Which the souls say that actually makes it worse. Which it kind of does, right? Maybe that. Maybe that's the goal. But it lets Morpheus off because he's like, I, I don't have to make a decision. Because we know Morpheus. And he does not like making decisions. But, I mean, the creator has spoken. He's going to do it. So that leaves the remaining conflict being, Azazel basically says, Well, I guess I'm just going to eat and destroy the soul of Nada then. And Morpheus says, (laughs) Wait a minute. I offered hospitality to everybody came, knowing or unknowing, and you have Nada within yourself. And Azazel then denounces the hospitality, which leaves him open to getting his ass kicked by Morpheus. You know what people need to stop doing? They need to stop picking fights with Morpheus while in his own goddamn realm. Really, right? Like, what do you think the realm is for? Aesthetic? Yeah. So... He goes in, he frees Nada, and then in a scene reminiscent of at the end of Preludes and Nocturnes, when he expresses himself as the entirety of the realm and holds John Dee in his hand, he does that to Azazel and puts him inside a little jar. And then walks the jar over to a chest, which has some very curious mementos in it, including the skull of the Corinthian and a city in a bottle, which will become relevant in the story Ramadan later on. One, My single most favorite issue of Sandman. Mm. Puts Azazel in the chest uh, to chill out with the f- statement, I trust that this will teach you better manners, little demon. Then looks at everybody else and says, anybody else have a problem with my decision? Anyone else want to fuck with me in my own realm? <laughs> and they're all just like, nope. Nope, we're good, we're good. good. And they all just leave. Now, Loki starts trying to say something about people are misunderstanding and something's wrong when Thor just punches him out. That sounds about right. And then we get the aftermath. The angels ruling hell, which is not going to go well for them. Now there are two of them. 
And you have to wonder, are they now... I, in their worldview, universe view, whatever, Lucifer ruled hell because he was cast out of the Silver City for challenging the Creator. Are they being punished now in some way? Which brings credence, in a sense, to Lucifer's viewpoint that if hell has to exist in the Creator's view, and there must be a hell, did he ever actually have free will, or was he just doing the Creator's plan the whole time? I'm going to go with that. Seems likely. Meanwhile, Morpheus chats with Nada. She bitch slaps him. As she should. Him being the bitch, not her here. Mm -hmm. And he gets pissed off and then says, well, yeah, you're right. And she agrees to being reincarnated. Mm -hmm. Rather than continue with him as a dream or go to the sunless lands. Which I thought was nice. Yeah, I don't blame her. Meanwhile, we see Susano Ono Makoto, the Japanese storm god, essentially try to sneak out of Dream's palace... Dream stops him and goes, Loki, you can't pull this shit with me. And Loki's like, don't send me back, don't send me back, don't send me back. And Morpheus is like, nope, not going to. You can go on about your way. I do have to go free Susano Ono Makoto, which, why, by the way, why'd you pick him? And basically he says, I don't like storm gods. That's, <laughs> that sounds about right. He has issues. Of course, at least as presented here, Thor really was a complete dick. And, and their father. Yeah, well, Odin Odin has issues. Um, I, I would be curious to see how Gaiman writes Freya. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling that he wouldn't... That he would not write her uh, quite in the same vein as Odin. We also find out that Nuala, the female fairy, uh, has been sent as a permanent gift to Morpheus, who then strips her of her illusions before letting her become a permanent part of the house. And we see her turn from a tall blonde to a small, shorter creature with mousy brown hair. Mm. The difference between fairy glamour and reality. Mm-hmm. But still, fair kind of fucked up. Yeah. And Nuala uh, will become important in later storylines. Oh. Everything that's happened here becomes important. And when Morpheus lets Loki go, he says, I'll let you go, but you owe me a favor. Oh, God. All of this becomes important later. Never, never owe an endless a favor. Seriously. And then at the end, we get Lucifer on the beach in Australia. Because it's always Australia. Australia always has to deal with the dangerous shit. Well, except Lucifer is just here hanging out and he's just enjoying the sunset. Still, having an endless in your area still feels dangerous. Yeah. And this, you know, older guy is just walking along the beach, talking to him, takes him for, you know, a gay fuck boy. Um, it's like, it's all right. We can all share the beach. <laughs> Got to know they're progressive. Um, and Lucifer just enjoys the sunset and is like, all right, I admit it. You do a good job, you old bastard, meaning the creator. And at the end, we see things end where they started, with Destiny walking through his garden. And we get a quote from The Man Who Was October by G.K. Chesterton from the Library of Dreams, indicating it was a book that he never managed to write when he was alive. Mm -hmm. Or at least awake. Mm 
October knew, of course, that the action of turning a page, of ending a chapter, or of shutting a book did not end a tale. Having admitted that, he would also avow that happy endings were never difficult to find. It is simply a matter, he explained to April, of finding a sunny place in a garden where the light is golden and the grass is soft, somewhere to stop, to rest, and to be content. The end. Dun, dun, dun. So what did you think? That was good. I enjoyed that. I do wonder how they're going to play that out on TV, though. Yeah. Oops. Yeah, I'll be very curious. All right. We're going to end it here. Next time, we're going to pick up with Thermidor. 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 Class is dismissed. <laughs>